Letter from Helvetica is brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com and shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk. Letter from Helvetica by Andrew McIntosh. Starring Andrew McIntosh as John and Natalie Rolls as Abby. Chapter 1. You say goodbye, I say hello. John Stotter, Penstrother Grange, Helvetica, Cornwall, 4th April. Dearest Abby, I know you think me the most regressive and archaic dimwit, but you know I am not quite the Luddite you would have me be. Picture for a moment, if you will, my study at the house in Helvetica, and you will recall that, while it is hardly mission control, I am, nonetheless, as hooked up, wired up, and, indeed, all shook up just as much as I want to be. I mean, I understand how to surf, how to stream music, how to watch the telly on my PC rather than on my... Um, well, telly. But I really do not feel the need to understand, par exemple, P2P. Unless, of course, that should be a reference to the healthy functioning of the prostate gland in a gentleman of my advancing years. So, despite your insistence that the epistles we have promised to send each other during your sojourn in the South Pacific would be so much more swift if the winged messenger should be transported on the trade winds of the WWW, I'm afraid that at sixty-two I simply cannot and will not let go of the notion that a letter should be a letter, and not a series of ones and zeros. So my correspondence with you will remain firmly analogue. So there. A real letter should be tangible, palpable, offering anticipation and thrill, the envelope slit to release the aroma of the watermarked post-quarto. Can't get all that from an email, now can you? And there's no use you sitting there telling me that for every piece of paper another forest falls. That's bollocks, frankly. I shall plant another ruin in the garden, and shall thereby be offset. Anyway, now that I've justified myself, I was thrilled to be able to see all of you off at the airport. I know it's a long way to come from Cornwall, but as I said, I had the new house elf to pick up the day after, and I can always keep myself most royally entertained with a day trip to London— just the one, mind, any more, and I would be pining for the salty sea air, the country balm, and the general lunacy of Helvetica. The children were a joy to see, of course, a marvellous cocktail of excitement, trepidation, and wonderment, wrapped up in a tortilla of prepubescent cool. Apart, of course, from Spot, who was too young to do any other than wear her heart on her sleeve, Bless her very small cotton socks. Fits age four to six. To be sure, it is a very grand adventure you are set on, and my heart is filled with admiration for your courage and fortitude. 
Call me a sentimental old fart if you will, but you have always been my favourite niece. Oh, all right, my only niece. But as I never had children, I'm afraid all of my paternal leanings gravitate to you, as you well know. I am quite sure that you will make your year away a rip-roaring success, and that your employers, Scarum, Fleesum, and Poisonum, or whatever they're called, will be indescribably proud of you and agree to reward you evermore for your brilliance. None of you will ever be the same, of course, and hallelujah to that. Travel, and I mean proper travel, truly does broaden the mind and opens one's heart to all of the world's possibilities, and vaccinates the soul against the cankers of bigotry and parochialism. If I had not travelled so extensively during my army days, I would not be the well-rounded, articulate, intelligent, not to say perfect man who sits here scratching his parker on the virgin white, if you will. So anyway, after I waved au revoir to you at security, I thought about hanging around the airport and actually waving at your plane as it took off, but I quickly realised what a moronic idea that was, so instead took myself off to the Heathrow Express, which really is a misnomer. The Heathrow moderate would be more apt, or even better, the Heathrow... A word I am given to understand has made it through the hallowed portals of the OED. Heaved my carcass over to Pall Mall and checked in at the Army and Navy Club, spruced myself up to look like the elegant old campaigner I never was, and bogged off for dinner with your father. I know this is returning to an old theme, and I promise not to use these letters as a platform for batting on endlessly about him, but he really is the most insufferable and tedious old tosser, I know he's older than I am, but by the time you get to 64 and 62 respectively, brotherly seniority counts for squat. He has never ever got to grips with the fact that I stopped doing his bidding over 50 years ago. Yet he still feels it appropriate to comment on how I dress, how much I drink, my health, what I do with my life since I retired, and on and on none of which is any of his sodding business. Shan't change him, I know, and I realise you share some of my frustration, so I shall button my lip and not raise the subject again, ever. Well, at least for forty-eight hours. Except, by way of an epilogue, he insisted on paying for the meal, even though we both inherited precisely the same amount from your grandfather, and are therefore pretty much on a par financially. And, despite going to eat at Lou Cheers, which is my restaurant, damn it, I have a table there which is just for me. Oh, well. I managed to squeeze a very fine bottle of Castello di Tavolesi out of him, none of which he touched, smug, supercilious bastard. Now, I really, really will shut up about him. Back at the Army and Navy, glowing with a warmth that only a decent bottle of red obtained with my brother's cash can provide, I bumped into two old chums from UN days, 
Chunky Chalmers and Stiffy Devlin. Chunky's moniker came about because he's a fat bastard. Stiffy's came about because of what tended to happen to him in the showers. Stiffy wasn't, as my dear departed mother would have it, remotely musical. He just never could help his old chap rising enthusiastically whenever it was liberated from the confines of his fatigues. He swore that he would concentrate madly on such unromantic images as cold kippers and his tax bill, but there it still was, like a magnificent, if rather more pink, leaning tower of Pisa. Not at all sure if he still suffers the same affliction, if indeed affliction it was, and I chose not to ask. But after the two bottles of Glenmorangie the three of us got through, I suspect all his caped crusader could have mustered that night would have been waving a white flag. Uncle John was not, therefore, at his brightest as dawn cracked over the Thames, but I bravely put on that face that the wearer believes says, I do not have a hangover, but to everyone else says, My say, isn't that the butler from the Adams family? I endured the ennui of the Heathrow meh, once more, and staggered into the arrivals hall of Terminal 2, where I searched out a purveyor of moderately decent coffee, and glugged it like a desert traveller reaching an oasis. You undoubtedly think I'm being utterly exploitative and money-grubbing by tapping into labour from our Eastern European cousins, but I see it more as extending the prosperous and exquisitely cuffed arm of Western friendship to the lumpen proletariat, who will be raised up by our sophistication and technological advancement, if you will. I had, like all who collect strangers from the airport, carefully written the name of the new house elf upon a large card, very carefully as it happens, given her name as Zlata Yasminka Zivkovich. When this quite stupendous vision of blonde loveliness bore down upon me and said, You must be John, all I could summon up in reply was, so how do you pronounce your name? She replied blithely, just how it's spelled. Do you think she might have been taking the P to P? More anon, but for now I must fly. Zlata has espied Gabriel the gorgeous gardener on his knees by the raised beds, and I must intervene lest sap rise more than can possibly be good for the purple sprouting broccoli. Miss you already, all love, John. Abby.Wesley at plantofleader.com Abigail Wesley, House Blanc, Olfala, Burbango, Vanuatu. April 10th. Dear John, you will be delighted to hear that your letter arrived today. Only six days after you posted it which is pretty astounding given that it's endured a number of boat rides to get here. Never mind the trans-hemispheric flight. I have absolutely...
absolutely no objection if you want to write old-fashioned letters. Really. And I'm thrilled at your suggestion of planting a tree in amelioration. I look forward to receiving your missives etched onto pieces of its bark. And it's super that you're able to overlook the gargantuan amount of fossil fuel it takes to transport your 30-gram envelope, the 12,000 miles it's taken to get to Vanuatu. Honestly, you're a whole little climate-warming disaster of your own. You put me in mind of methane in so many ways. I know I can't change you. And your reasons are sort of poetically sweet, I suppose. But equally, I know you won't mind me taking advantage of the wonders of the 21st century and using email. Especially as my company have supplied me with a satellite phone of my very own to use. Fancy that! And I can use it as a dongle, what is more. Just what a girl needs. I've had to be very firm with the kids, though, and tell them that, no, they can't text their mates back in England on the sat phone. Or the bat phone, as Richard calls it. Nor can they use it for connecting to Facebook or Instagram, and Richard's porn subscriptions have had to be cancelled for the duration. They will all just have to endure the loss, poor lambs, because there ain't no other telecoms on Babango can't believe you turned up at the airport to wave us off. It was lovely of you, but you really needn't have. I'm sorry if the kids were all a bit mad. They so equate you with holidays and the beach and swimming and summer that I think that seeing you just added to their excitement about heading off to the other side of the world. And they started behaving like, well, other people's children. Sorry. Spot thought you were coming with us, but once I explained that you were staying in Helvetica, she quickly cheered up. Ho, ho. The 6,000 miles to Bangkok sapped them of all of that malarkey, though, I can tell you. And I can't even begin to describe the way the colour drained from their little faces when we said that we still had the same distance to go again. As journeys go, it all went like clockwork, but oh my god, it's such a long way. If you want to test the watertightness of your marriage, take your family on a trip to an obscure island in the South Pacific. You'll soon find out if there are any cracks in the old sealant. Mind you, can't even begin to imagine how much more painful it would be if one were to be funding it out of one's own coffers. Thank God the company had agreed to pay for the entire family, albeit economy and albeit in one hit. We would have had to have sold at least one child into indentured labour otherwise. Is it possible to mortgage your offspring? Now there's a thought. Richard was a brick throughout, it has to be said, although his relentless joke-telling, while designed to keep the brood sweet, became, by the end, a justifiable reason for both patricide and, uh, what's the word for killing one's husband? Fungicide, perhaps? When we arrived in Sydney, we had a fairly long layover. 
Richard said that he would have preferred a jolly long layover in Bangkok. Oh, how I laughed. <laughs> so we took the airport train into the city centre and had a decent lunch, i.e. not one served in a plastic tray, in a pizzeria, on the waterfront, and gawped at the harbour and the bridge and the opera house. It was sheer bliss to sit outside in the sunshine, basking like guanas in delicious warmth, feeling English damp evaporating from our bones. I have to say, the kids were just magnificent at this point. We were all so tired that we were slightly hallucinatory, doubting what was real and what was not. So much so that in future years... I can well imagine that they might deny that they were ever there. But they were remarkably tolerant of their parents simply pointing at landmarks in desultory fashion and expecting that to be sufficiently entertaining for them. The final leg from Sydney to Bowerfield in Port Vila was three and a half hours of such exquisite torture that the CIA could have got us to confess to anything – JFK, nicking the Shroud of Turin, the Brighton Trunk murders at all. The plane, which Caleb reliably informed us was a very new Boeing 737-800, had nonetheless seats that seemed to be stuffed with something unexpected that felt remarkably like knees. Undoubtedly, it was the cumulative effect of 20 hours in the air without any legroom. But egard, it was inhuman. Only Spot's five-year-old legs seemed to be short enough to fit, but even she didn't get any sleep, so when we finally touched down in the exotic land that is to be our new home for the next year, none of us could have given a monkey's, quite frankly. Thank the good Lord the company had had the foresight to book us into a hotel near the airport for the night, rather than trying to make it to Babango then and there. The hotel staff were utterly charming and wanted to tell us all about the wonderful delights that their resort has to offer, but we were in that yeah, yeah, yeah frame of mind. Just show us the beds. Emily was so tired that she got teary and said she was homesick and wanted to go home. I was so exhausted in turn that I could have happily throttled the little lamb and served her up studded with garlic and mint sauce on the side. But I was suitably mumsy instead and diverted the crisis with soothing nighttime chats. Rich and I eventually fell asleep probably around one in the morning and we slept like the filthy, sweaty, smelly, air-blitz nomads we truly were. We were awoken in the morning by the sound of three children with moods considerably improved over the previous night. They had already been up and exploring for a while and, returning to our suite, were now variously bouncing upon the bed, running around the rooms like Labradors and flinging open curtains. Once flung, we could see why the hotel staff had been so keen to boast of its attractions. I had thought the walk from reception to our chalet had been a tad laborious, and now, as I peered with blurred and crusty vision, I could see why. 
we had been billeted in one of a handful of little bungalows that form the shape of a horseshoe on a little private island, each overhanging a lagoon the colour of tanzanite. It was breathtaking. No other word for it. Douglas, the chairman of Planta Vida, had said that he had booked us into a nice place for the night, but I really had no idea quite how nice. Emily had been uncharacteristically maternal and raided suitcases for some clean shorts and T-shirts for her younger brother and sister. Spot, though, had chosen to put only her T-shirt on because, as she told Em, I don't have time for pants. Quite right, too. So she kept flashing her gorgeous little bum as she hurtled around. Ah, à la recherche du trompe-du. You have been listening to Letter from Helvetica by Andrew McIntosh. Starring Andrew McIntosh as John Stotter and Natalie Rolls as Abigail Wesley. Brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com and shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk. The series is produced by Oliver Crocker. Co-produced by Glenn Allen, Rob Cook, Tessa Crocker, Michelle de Souter, Bryony Kelly, Tracy King, Paul Morris, Triona Palmer, Laura Pinifay, Lee Pointer, Valerie Rolls, Julia Thurlow, and Andrew Ruff. And executive produced by Andrew Dyack, George Fairbrother, Edward Kellett, Sophie Pycroft, Amanda Rotherham, Kay Scoble, and Michael Seeley. Next time... A Long and Winding Road. If you'd like to binge Series 1 of Letter from Helvetica, you can unlock all eight episodes and behind-the-scenes content on patreon.com forward slash letterfromhelvetica.